0: Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Let's Talk About It. This is Susan Johnson, and my host is off doing great things in the community. But we have a wonderful guest today. I can't say how pleased I am to have Commissioner Sean Scanlon with us to talk about all the things that happened during this last legislative session and all the great work that he's been doing as the comptroller. So, welcome to the show, uh, Commissioner Scanlon.
1: Yeah, thank you, Susan. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, so uh, just tell us a little bit about how uh, the first cycle uh, that you've had as the comptroller has been going.
1: Well, you know, um, it's been going really well. I've been doing this job for about six months, and uh, I served with you in the legislature for many years. So it's sort of an adjustment going from the legislative branch to the executive branch. But um, while my jobs may have changed, the issues that I was working on did not change, uh, and that's healthcare and the budget and. Our uh, economy and those are all things I was doing in the legislature and so the transition was a little bit easier but um, it did take me a while to find the bathrooms and all the other stuff that you, need to do <laughs> do when you you get a new job here
0: exactly yeah well I know that you were the former chairman of the finance revenue and bonding uh, uh, committee and that is a big committee I served on that my first three terms and I went over to appropriations for the last few so it is uh, it's a big big committee and it's got a lot of responsibility that you managed very very well when you were the chairman Chairman of the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: So moving on, uh, some of your big uh, th- wins this uh, last legislative session. Uh, one of the things that I think was really, really important was trying to find a way uh, for everybody to have a pathway to state employment issues. And, how, you know, what was some of the – what did you see as the controller to some of the limitations we had in our systems that created some possibilities of not getting the best possible people in there as state employees?
1: Yeah, so basically um, 60% of people in our state, Susan, don't have a college degree. And that does not mean that that 60% of people doesn't have something to offer. And that is something that I think more and more uh, I'm trying to work in because, frankly, I am the first person in my family to go to college. And I know that... Um, Certainly when it comes to my mom, who without a college degree and a high school degree created a very successful small business. Um, Sometimes even to this day when she tries to apply for a job, the fact that she doesn't have a college degree from 50 years ago is used against her when it comes to employment. And so um, what I've been trying to do as Comptroller is to say, hey, can we look at all the different jobs that Connecticut offers for state employees and reevaluate whether some of those really need a college degree or not. The good news is in Connecticut, ninety percent of the college, uh, or ninety percent of the jobs that we have in Connecticut don't require a college degree, um, which is good news. We have more work to do there. But what I'm now trying to do, Susan, is try to get the private sector to think like that as well. Um, yes, of course, there are always going to be jobs that require college degrees, and I'm not trying to minimize a college degree. I think if you can afford to get one, and if you can get into a college these days. It's great to get one, but a college degree is not the only path to a good-paying job, nor should it be, and I'm trying to use my platform to sort of make sure that people know that.
0: Great. Well, that's that's a wonderful thing, and I know that uh, sometimes when you get a good-paying job and, the, and you do have the desire to go to college, but you couldn't afford it initially, that gives you the chance to go part time at night, or you know, it, you know, mix it up a little bit. I know I did that with law school. I worked full time and went to law school at night, so I know it can be done. Uh, <laughs> if you you know, if you don't have the money to pay for it just to be a student, uh, sometimes you can do both.
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think that this is just really about. Making sure that we sort of as a society sort of move away from this college or bus mentality that so many young people are sort of spoon-fed by both, you know, the school that they go to and sometimes even their parents. Uh, just yesterday I was in your neck of the woods and I went to a, a manufacturing facility in Plainfield called Westminster Tool. I had met them a few weeks earlier at a roundtable on this issue. And I talked to a young woman that was there that in eighth grade discovered that she wanted to get into this field because she did a makerspace event where she made a dog tag for herself. And her parents were not manufacturing, and her parents really didn't get it, but she really, really wanted to do this. Uh, And with the support of her parents and her community, she went to a technical school for high school, and then right out of high school got a job at this facility and is doing very, very well financially financially. and it's a different tradition, non traditional pathway, but a really important pathway and one that we should be doing a better job of as a state. To help people get into, it, in my opinion.
0: Well, just one other thing about that, or maybe two other things. The first thing I want to say about technical school is we have our uh, secretary, who was our former education commissioner, who did go to technical school and then went on to college and then went on to get his Ph.D. So, yeah. so you have a, you don't have to just limit yourself when you go to tech school either. Absolutely. You can jump. You can go from one thing to the next. I know when I first started college, I started out with an associate's degree in biology because I thought I was going to be a physical therapist. And then I noticed uh, some other things that I liked. So I ended up with an, uh, a bachelor's degree in sociology and applied social relations, and then I went off to law school. Yep. <laughs> but the Absolutely. job I got afterwards had to do with both biology and uh, policy uh, as an advocate for Medicare beneficiaries. So I had to know all the biology, but I had to also be able to do the policy stuff. Sure. So, so it's sure. a combination. You just don't know what's going to be waiting for you out there with all the interests that you might have be able to develop. The mm-hmm. Another thing that I want to mention is when I went to meet with Obama's people uh, a few years back, I I found that they were looking at apprenticeship programs. How does this fit in with apprenticeship programs?
1: Yeah, so that's such a good point. you know, what the, the manufacturing roundtable that I did that met the guys from Westminster Tool and Plainfield was done at Athletic Brewing Company in Milford, which is one of the fastest-growing Connecticut companies right now. They make non-alcoholic beer, but the non-alcoholic beer is actually pretty good. <laughs> so if you're <laughs> in the market for that, uh, you know, check out Athletic. But um, basically, at this conversation, we had the folks from the Office of Workforce uh, Strategies in Connecticut and Paul Levoy, who runs manufacturing. And what they were saying is that in Eastern Connecticut, in particular, and I know you know this, Susan, but maybe your listeners don't, there's this great thing called the Eastern Connecticut Manufacturing Pipeline where basically um, they sort of find a kid who's interested in this, they give them the skills, they give them an apprenticeship or an internship, and that leads to a good paying job in a very, you know, relative short period of time. Um, and so what we're doing as a state is trying to just connect the dots here a little bit. So there's a ton of manufacturers out there that have a lot of openings, and those openings are for very good-paying jobs. But the people who are unemployed right now don't necessarily have the skills to slide right into that job. And so the state's role in all this is to sort of be the middleman in between that to say, okay, let's find the kids who are unemployed or underemployed. Let's train them up to give them the skills. Let's give them an apprenticeship so they can learn the skills and make sure it's for them. And then at the end of that process, there is a job waiting for them to, in many cases, pay them more than their parents make at the age of 20, 21, 22.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's that's such great information, and it's something I keep stressing to people uh, as well. And I'm so thrilled that your office uh, is promoting this, because making sure people get the jobs, making sure that the jobs are filled, making sure that people understand that there are jobs out there. You don't have to have a college degree, and there's lots of opportunity, and you can start out, and you can continue uh, with your life-learning experiences in multiple different ways. So it's a, it's a great thing, but the best that's- thing... Totally. is to get be able to get those jobs that pay you enough money to make sure you can have uh, all the things that you expect to have in this American society.
1: Yeah, and, and Connecticut, I think, is actually doing a really good job on this. And, you know, we, we are a state that used to be a manufacturing hub, right? And during right. the industrial age, this was where we made things in Connecticut. Um and while we may not be making things at the level that they used to make them we're doing a lot of manufacturing in connecticut and i think it's a best kept secret of our state uh and we need to do more of it and by training people and giving them the skills we can do and that's a very very good thing for our economy and to bring it all back home for me as the comptroller some people may be listening and say why the heck is the comptroller doing this well number one i'm in charge of all the state's workforce and so that's where that that first part comes in but second Every month, I have to report on the state of our economy and the state of our budget, and we will not have success in either of those two things if we don't get the workforce issues right and if we don't grow jobs in the state. And so that's why I'm laser-focused on this. And a place like Eastern Connecticut is ground zero for a lot of people who, hey, have a lot of skills, have a lot of experience, and with a little bit more help, we can put a lot more people to work in that part of the state.
0: I'm so thrilled to hear you talk about Eastern Connecticut that way because there's just so much potential here in Eastern Connecticut, and I think we need to make sure everybody knows it so we can start making sure all our brains come together to work on the expansion of our economy here in Eastern Connecticut. So I'm really glad to hear. And that let me just tell you on one
1: that. one more story to that end, which yeah. is that at the, at that event in, in Athletic uh, a couple weeks ago, Paul Lavoy, who's our Chief Manufacturing Officer, got up and said that this year. Electric Boat, uh, which is on the southern part of, uh, you know, your territory in Eastern Greek, as you know, yeah. uh, hired 250 high school graduates for jobs right out of high school. 250, and he went to the opening uh, sort of orientation for these people, and the guy who runs EB got up there and said, "Hey, I want you to raise your hand if somebody has told you that they're proud of you." that you got this job at EB and are not going to college. And he said not one of the kids raised their hand. So for me, at the end of the day, Susan, we got to do better about, you know, saying, hey, it's great if you can go to college, but how awesome is it that you can get a job right out of high school helping make submarines to defend our country not too far from where you live? People should be proud of that, and we got to make sure that all of us are proud of work and we return the dignity of work, which I don't think that we've done a good job of here in America in a long time.
0: Well, you know, I think that the uh, defense industry uh, has been, uh, you know, limited in terms of the conversation. And I don't think people fully understand the importance of submarines defending our coastline. And and we need to make sure that people really understand that we need submarines to defend us. And so do our other countries that we're uh, working with, like NATO, uh, like Australia. Those places are places that are really interested in making sure they're defending their areas we make the best submarines anywhere in the world right here at electric boat and we have a wonderful congressman i have to mention congressman courtney because he's been you know leading this charge for several decades or at least a decade and uh this is something that is uh very important we need to understand the submarines defend our coastlines they defend us and so I think that that's the, some of the conversation we have to make people understand, is that this is, a, this is absolute defense. This is something that protects us.
1: Absolutely. And, uh,
0: and with the kinds of things that we've been seeing in, in the world today, we need that protection. Totally. So yeah, so thanks for raising that. The other, th- the next thing I want to touch base with you on is this great bill that you have with respect to the uh, prescription drugs and the multi-state consortium to purchase the drugs at a lower price. What a great idea, and what a great thing. Some people have talked about this for a long time, and now we have this um, this something that that our state's going to be doing with other states to get a hold on what's going on with the pharmaceutical industry and try and make them, you know, work with us instead of dividing us up into little pieces and making us compete and pay the highest price for the for the pharmaceutical, uh, having uh, the ability to purchase with other states really will help us out, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, everywhere I go, I hear sad story after sad story after sad story of people telling me things like, you know, I can't afford the drug I need to survive. I can't afford one prescription. And I had to beg the pharmacist to give me an alternative to that and to me, Susan, as somebody who believes that healthcare is a human right, as I know that you do as well, um, the the cost of drugs is just outrageous and insane and and we've taken some steps. You know, you and I together uh, a couple years ago, we capped the cost of insulin, for example. We've tried to bring transparency to drug pricing, but there's only so much that we can do at a state level because this is a global issue and really an issue in the United States. Um, But one thing that we can do, though, is use the leverage of government to try to help everybody else. And um, I have a $300 million contract annually with CVS as the state comptroller because I buy uh, all the drugs for our state employees, their family members, and our retirees. And with that leverage, um, we are now, starting this fall, going to offer this drug discount card that all of your listeners can get later on this year and use at their local pharmacy to ensure that they get the same discounts that our state employees are getting for the heft of that drug contract. Um, Right now, in the three states that do this, they save an average of 80% on the cost of the generic drugs that they're getting at their pharmacy. So for your listeners who are out there who are just fed up with the insane cost of drugs every time they go to their pharmacy, um, help is on the way, and I'm glad to have worked with the governor on this bill, and hopefully uh, in very short order, your listeners will get an update on how and when they can start to get that card and use it.
0: That's fabulous information. I just have a little question, and I'm not sure how this fits in with how Medicaid, our state Medicaid program, purchases pharmaceuticals. Is it in conjunction with what you do, or is that with another group of states, or do they do it individually through the federal government because they're Medicaid and they're part federal, part state?
1: Yeah, so it's a good question, and this is super wonky for most of your listeners, but um, (laughs) we, we spend an inordinate amount of money as a state buying drugs every year. I buy $300 million of them. You know, UConn Health, for example, buys $161 million of them. Another provision of the same bill that we're talking about and something else I worked with the governor on that gets a lot less attention but is really important is that we, meaning my office, are going to study consolidating all of the drug purchasing in the state, meaning, my, what I do, what Medicaid does, what UConn Health does, what our prisons do. Our prisons spend a ton of money buying drugs right now. And seeing if we can put that all under one contract so that my $300 million of leverage turns into over a billion dollars of leverage. And with that leverage, we will be able to lower drug costs for everybody even more than we already are. So um, we have to study that. And next session, I'm hoping to present a bill to you, Representative Johnson, Mm -hmm. uh, that would authorize us to consolidate all the drugs under one contract, because I think, A, It'll save the taxpayers money, but B, it will then save all the citizens money by allowing me to give them even cheaper drugs at their local pharmacy counter, even if they're not a state employee.
0: Well, let me just add to that because they always, the insurance industry always says, well, if it weren't for the pharmaceutical costs, our premiums would be lower.
1: Yeah. Well, th- this, is what, <laughs> this is what I learned, and you know this. Um,
0: That's why I'm every, laughing.
1: <laughs> every, everyone blames everybody else, yes, right? The hospitals yes. blame the insurers. The insurers blame the drug companies. We're doing something right now uh, called a health care cost benchmark that for the first time ever, we passed this bill a couple years ago. It's bringing true transparency to what's driving the costs in Connecticut when it comes to health care, and we will no longer, you know, allow the blame game to sort of go on. We're going to actually be able to see, and the people of Connecticut will really see what's causing this so we can try to attack it and lower it.
0: That is wonderful. And I was going to get to that because that's uh, my my favorite part of your of some of these things because I've focused on healthcare care uh, my whole working life and also at the Capitol as well, as you know. And uh, so we'll get to the um, – the, the healthcare affordability yeah. law that was passed, and there's all these delightful things in here that I've been that part of uh, my process in terms of analyzing what I think we should be doing, and uh, so that's great. But before we get to that, and I think we can cover that, and we'll see how much how much time we have because that's a that's a biggie. Um, I did want to uh, talk about the wonderful work that was done with the pension reform bill for the municipalities yeah. because this is a huge thing. As you know, uh, the biggest problem most municipalities have in this state is the fact that the property tax is out of uh, very, very, very high for most towns. Yeah. And uh, certainly my district that also has a huge number of uh, state uh, office buildings. So we have a university, hospital. We have all kinds of state payment in lieu of taxes situations. Sometimes we have properties that are nonprofit that don't even get any payment in lieu of taxes. Yeah. In fact, I did, a, I did an analysis of that. It's $1.1 billion in, uh, over the whole entire state that has properties that can't be uh, taxed by the local community and don't get any payment in lieu of taxes at yeah. all. So yeah. $1.1 billion, these towns like mine, like a lot of the uh, poorer towns, the reason they're poorer because they're subsidizing the state and the region. Yeah. But, but anyway, I digress and I apologize. But yeah. um, but anyway, this, this is a huge, huge thing, uh, pension reform uh, and making sure that you're working with the municipalities. Tell us about that and how that came to be.
1: Yes. So I run this pension plan called CMERS. It's the municipal pension plan for cops, firefighters, public works employees in 107 of Connecticut's 169 towns. So almost two-thirds of the towns are part of this plan. And when I took office, the guys who work here basically sat me down and said, hey, we got a big problem. The costs of this plan have gone up by 75% in the last five years. The plan is not healthy. But we just want to let you know, but we know that you can't do anything about that because nobody's reformed this plan since 1947 when it first started. And I just fundamentally don't think that that's the point of serving in office. Um, I ran for office. You ran for office to try to fix things, not just kind of kick the can. And for a lot of people, kicking the can is what we do because it's the politically easier thing to do. Um, And I decided to do something different and wasn't afraid to fail. And over the course of six weeks, we brought together – democrats republicans labor and management into the small conference room outside my office and we came up with an agreement that would reform this plan for the first time in decades and in the process save those 107 towns 740 million dollars over the course of the next 30 years in addition to you know saving the underlying plan and to your point um you know in a time when in municipal government uh you know the The cities and towns of Connecticut are strapped for cash, and the only way, especially uh you know if they're not getting increased aid from Hartford as they have been recently, but that's not always the case is that property tax which is the worst possible thing in Connecticut as far as I'm concerned in terms of fairness and equity and all those things so by alleviating the burden that they would otherwise have to put on the taxpayers through egregious property tax increases uh, I think we've done a really good thing and we're going to keep working on it but I think at the end of the day Susan the, the biggest lesson I learned here is that half of the battle is just trying and we have a lot of legacy issues whether it's pension debt or health care problems or all these different things and the more that we try to tackle them, the better we are going to be as a state.
0: Absolutely. That is just wonderful work. And to think you were able to do that in the first six months of your work. Wow. <laughs> very, very impressive. Getting the municipalities together to talk and to try and address these uh, disparities that we have with respect to making sure people who did those jobs get those pensions. Because yeah. when you retire, boy, you want to make sure those pensions are there because they sure as heck will come in handy. Sure, uh, And it's a very very difficult situation if you don't have a pension as we've been finding out uh once the big businesses decided not to give uh defined benefit plans to people anymore and made them do 401ks and those kinds of things Uh, they just don't pay like they uh like a defined benefit plan would pay
1: yep so true
0: very, very good. It's very excellent work. That is great. So, yes, I do want to go into some more of that work that you did with respect to um, Health Care Summit in Middlesex sure. for the LGBTQ uh, uh, care at uh, the community college. You're having a series of roundtable discussions on health care and obstacles faced by Connecticut residents, and uh, we wondered, uh, you know, uh, how did that go?
1: So each month, I've been doing a different summit. Um, I actually kicked it off by doing a rural healthcare summit up at Yukon a few weeks ago. And what I'm trying to do, Susan, is use my bully pulpit as the comptroller and one of the six statewide elected officials in Connecticut to convene some really smart people uh, to tell me what they think we need to do from the healthcare perspective on these different issues, whether it's urban LGBTQ rural, uh, you know, we're going to be doing children's healthcare, mental healthcare, all these different topics that are so important at the end of this process, we're going to compile a big report and set of recommendations that I hope to give to you as a legislator and your colleagues to see if we can try to begin chipping away at some of the systemic problems that we face when it comes to healthcare. I'm learning a lot during this process. Um, getting to parts of the state that, you know, while I was a state rep representing a district, I didn't really get to. And that's part of the advantage of being the comptroller is that I can focus on this and get around the entire state and really learn what needs to be done. And uh, I'm learning a lot and hope that we'll get some good recommendations out pretty soon.
0: Oh, oh, wonderful. Very good. And so the next thing I want to mention is that you were here in town, right? You were here, yeah. and you did a tour on Main Street, and you went to different places uh, here in Wyndham, uh, and you uh, talked to people in uh, businesses here, uh, and also the No Free Shelter, Eminence, Inc., Cupcake for Later, and Trigo uh, Pizza Place, which is a brand-new place that has delicious pizza. But all of these things are delicious, and, of course, we're – very very thrilled with the work that the no free shelter has been doing for us for years and i have to just say that uh one of the things that i've been a little bit disappointed in with the state of connecticut is the fact that we wouldn't have the no free shelter if one of the people who loves willimantic david foster if his foster family foundation hadn't donated the money to create the building for the no free shelter the state has done very 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 little for the homeless and it's creating a problem because back in the the day when I worked at Legal Aid, we had a lot more in the way of state support for people who have these issues, and today we don't do it at all. Some of this is because the federal government's taking away mental health, institutional, institutionalizing money uh, for people in, on the Medicaid program, and so now they're on the riverbank or they're in the prisons and there's no place, they keep going around and around, and in the wintertime, our, our folks here are in the no-free shelter, hopefully. Uh, sometimes they can't be in the no-free shelter because they have such behavioral health difficulties that they end up sleeping outside in a tent, or they spend their days in, in the emergency room, waiting room, just to stay warm. Yeah. So we have a problem here that is uh, quite difficult. We have wonderful people running the shelter, but this is a this is a, a state policy problem and a federal policy policy pro- problem.
1: Well, as one well. thing that we what, what I was there for, uh, Representative, is that my office runs this program called My CD Savings, which helps small businesses and nonprofits with five or more employees, offer their employees a retirement plan at no cost to that business. And as nonprofits in particular, like that no free shelter, struggle to remain competitive when it comes to recruiting people to do this very noble and important work, offering this retirement plan is something they just never could have done. I was talking to Avery about it and she just they weren't able to ever do this before. And now they've signed up for this program and they really like it. I think a couple other people are in it. And it will help with recruitment, I think, and retention for them in this struggling field. And so it was great to walk around downtown Willimantic and talk to different people about this. And if you're listening out there right now and you own a business, uh, just check out myctsavings.com. The deadline to enroll is August 31st, and that was kind of the reason why I was downtown yesterday just trying to talk about this and raise awareness about it.
0: Well, that's wonderful, and it's great because we certainly need to have people work in that area. And, of course, the small businesses as well need that kind of support. So that's wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Oh, I, I love it. (laughs) <laughs> Having a good time.
0: <laughs> I, I can tell that you are. And then going on to the uh, health care affordability legislation, which is really uh, fabulous work here. Uh, and you're working with um, – uh, Let's let's. Well, where would you like to start when you talk about this bill? Because it's, it's pretty extensive, and the study that you're going to be doing is quite amazing. So why don't we start with what you would like to start with on it?
1: Well, I think the credit really actually belongs on this bill to the governor because the governor is somebody who I think, um, you know, really is interested in health care and trying to make health care more affordable. And he had introduced a bill earlier this year. And a lot of this stuff, as you know, Susan, <clears throat> is very wonky and complicated. And most of your listeners say, you know, listen, I don't care about the details of things. I just want you to lower the cost of my health care. And, you know, I tell people all the time, there's no one magic bullet, silver solution to making healthcare more affordable, as you know. It's a cumulative effort over time trying to lower the costs. And um, that's what the governor introduced that bill to do this year. Um, He worked very hard to sort of negotiate this thing with the hospitals to try to, you know, draw, draw down the cost of our hospitals and get more out of insurance companies. And uh, the, the piece that we talked about a little bit earlier that was part of this bill about drugs, I think, is a big part of that, too. At the end of the day, um, what I hope people know is that whether it's people like you, Susan, who are a champion for health care reform and are doing amazing work up there, whether it's the governor or it's my office, people understand that the health care system is broken. People in government understand that people really need relief. And we're working on it every day, but it's going to take some time, and we're working on it to try to lessen the time it takes, but it it is going to take some time.
0: Well, that's great. So let's start with one of the things that I helped create back when uh, Wyndham Hospital uh, actually – uh, cut, uh, actually uh, eliminated the intensive care unit and went to a progressive care unit back in nineteen uh, 20, <laughs> 2013 uh, right back in there 2015 actually and so when that happened I was very very concerned yeah. and uh, former Lieutenant Governor Nancy Wyman and I sat down she created a task force we had wonderful people participating in the task force and it came, we were able to go and, and create the Office of Healthcare Strategy, which includes the Office of Healthcare Access. And as you know, I'm sure, uh, over the last uh, couple of years, we've had... uh, because of COVID, and because of the uh, probably the decrease in the cost uh, for people who are uh, in labor and delivering babies, uh, they are cu- they're eliminating those uh, opportunities for yeah. uh, pregnant mothers to be able to deliver in their local communities and putting them in the larger hospitals. I think the reimbursement rates might be different, but I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, so now we have uh, the elimination of the emergency room. We Then uh, a couple of years ago, they got rid of the maternity delivery services at Wyndham Hospital. They're also trying to do it at Sharon Hospital.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Johnson Memorial Hospital just had their hearing, I think it was yesterday, yesterday Yeah. yeah. Uh, on the same issue. And this isn't just Connecticut, though. This yeah. is a nationwide issue. Yeah. And it's kind of strange, I think, to all of a sudden to try and shut down maternity and delivery services, Uh, but I do think, I mean, one of the things that I was pleased that we did this year was um, offer to do, you know, local, you know, uh, non-complicated births and birthing centers uh, close to hospitals, so.
1: Yeah, it's a complicated issue because everyone loves their local hospital and everyone wants to remain, you know, able to go a short ride away to get everything done for them, and unfortunately, it's becoming more and more expensive to do that and unsustainable for the hospitals. But and so I, I get that part of it, but I do also think that there is a responsibility, like I said earlier, I think healthcare is a human right and I don't think it's very human rightsy to have to drive forty five minutes to go have a baby. Right. Um and I've had two kids as the guy holding a hand, not uh-huh. actually delivering the baby, right. Um, right. and I would never, ever want to have to say to my wife, "Hey, honey, let's get in the car and drive that long distance while she's in the middle of labor." It was very, very scary. <laughs> it
0: is it <laughs> driving is.
1: ten minutes, let alone fifty minutes for for me. So, um, you know, part of what I, I'm doing is working with uh, you know Dr. Deidre Gifford, who is the head of the Austin of Health Strategy with the governor with local legislators in places like Sharon and in places like Windham to try to work with these hospital providers to see what we can do to maintain the kind of community supports that people need. I was just in, uh, yesterday before I was in Willimantic. I was at Day Kimble, um mm-hmm. and talking to them about how important that hospital is for for that community and how important it is to maintain adequate health care services for, you know, rural Connecticut. And, uh, it's something that I'm going to continue to focus on. It's why I had that big summit at UConn. It's why I'm sort of going to these hospitals, and it's why I'm really looking for answers here about how we can sort of maintain the services that everyone wants to see. Oh,
0: well, that's great. And I'll just add another thing I've been uh, seeking to find, and there is the, the hospital associations, which are private nonprofit organizations, are, are creating the policy for what it means to be a hospital. Yeah. And so one of the things, and then they, of course, get the information from the national uh, hospital association societies. And so some of those things need to be made public and right now because they're private nonprofit organizations they're holding on to that information. Yeah. And I have been requesting the information but I have yet to have any I've I've been told I could pay for it.
1: They don't have the money to pay for the 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 task force you're saying or
0: No, for the hospital associations rules which create which our public health oh. organization, our public health uh, providers our public health uh, commissioner uses to say, "This is Got what it. you need to do to certify a certify a hospital. This is what a hospital what it means to be a hospital in Connecticut." Yeah. And they they have that information nationally through the Hospital Association, which is a private nonprofit organization. And then we have a, a you know subgroup, a state group, Hospital Association that just takes most of the information, is my understanding, from the national hospital association group mm. and they have all this information that they're not really sharing with the legislature
1: seems like something we got to figure out Susan
0: thank you thank you Commissioner Scanlon I do appreciate that I have asked people to help me out with it in leadership and they said oh we can get that and then I haven't heard back and that was a couple months ago
1: <laughs> mm. we, we got to figure that out
0: yes but I think that that might help and in, in some of the analysis that you're doing as well so just as a thought um, and then um, so that's one of the things. Uh, one of the things also that I noticed that you were in here uh, talking about is um, the idea of what you're going to be doing with the, the pharmace- pharmaceutical business. Uh, Benefit manager groups. Uh, we have CVS here in Connecticut, uh, but PBMs uh, have all these little games that they play with yeah. with their uh, costs. And I know that in the past we've tried to to stop them from, uh, say, charging the full price to the beneficiary, but then giving a kickback to the insurance industry.
1: Yeah. So in 2018, when I was just a state legislator, I actually worked with my predecessor and former counselor, Kevin Lembo, to pass the first prescription drug price transparency law. And what we find sometimes with laws we pass is that they have good intentions, but they don't solve the problem, or worse, and that's the case here, industry finds ways around the laws we pass. And so the law that you all passed this year... um, strengthen that PBM transparency law to try to prevent them from wiggling their way out of it. And just so you know, your listeners know, you know, PBM is this shady middleman that exists between your insurance company and the pharmaceutical provider that you go to that basically determines what the insurance company will cover. And there is a lot of money flung back and forth between the insurers and the drug companies to get on that list, called the formulary list. And there's not a lot of transparency as to what's going on with that. And we need to find that out because as you look at what's driving health care costs, it's drugs. And it seems insane to think of, hey, the cost of drugs is going up because there's this secretive backroom negotiation happening between big drug corporations and big insurance companies. I think if we get to the bottom of that, we can lower the cost of drugs. And that's why we're trying to update the laws in real time.
0: I'm so thrilled because this is, I I have to interject a little bit. I've been going to women in government national meetings, and one of the things that we hear about at the national level is the PBMs and how they're getting all these kickbacks. Yeah. And I know that we've worked at it. You've worked at this for a few years now. Uh, and we've really worked hard at it. But no matter if, if they have a, a team of lawyers uh, that works in this area, once we pass a law, the first thing they're going to be doing is looking at a way to uh, make the money anyway and figure out a way around that law we pass. So yeah. it's uh, when you're dealing with teams of lawyers that just Spend all their time on this. Uh, it's very, very hard to overcome that. The same with the hospital associations. They have teams and teams of lawyers that work on these things to maximize their uh, maximize the money that they make. And uh, then they complain they don't have enough money, but they certainly do pay their CEOs enough.
1: So, what I find, Susan, is you know the difference in the first six months is as a legislator, as you know, we. Uh, <laughs> criminally understaffed, I would say, uh, at the legislature, and uh, the resources that are available to us as as legislators just aren't as much. Um, Now, I run an agency of 250 people who are very, very smart and very, very capable, and we have the time and the resources to sort of dig into problems. And so um, I'm going to continue to work on these things and now have the resources to actually do that on behalf of the taxpayers. And whether it's pension reform or healthcare reform or my CD Savings... You know, just trying to do work every day that lowers costs and makes Connecticut more affordable for the kind of families like the one that I grew up in.
0: It's so wonderful that you have an understanding of all these things, and I'm so thrilled you're working as the comptroller for us, Comptroller Scanlon. I just wanted to go into a little bit about the facility fees, because that's been an ongoing problem. People all of a sudden, they go to a building that's run by Hartford Health, for example, Yeah. Uh, and uh, they get treatment, they're covered uh, by the insurance, and then, boom, they get another bill? A, a facility fee? What's
1: that? Yeah, so um, th- this is something that uh, stresses a lot of people out, and it's something that th- there's not a lot of information about. But essentially facility fees are a way that hospitals have found to make money lately, which is that they charge you a fee, sometimes it's you know $250, just to go to one of their facilities. And starting, I would say, almost 10 years ago, Uh, former Senator Len Fasano and Marty Looney have worked pretty hard to bring a lot of reform to this, but there still is more to be done. And the bill that you passed this year uh, does just restrict the ability for facility fees to be passed on to customers even more than it had uh, in the past. And so uh, I think it it is a good thing uh, that will help lower the cost of uh, you know, health care for people in Connecticut for something they really don't even understand. Um, and in this particular case, it basically prohibits the facility fee from being charged when the services are actually happening at a hospital, which seems like a basic no-brainer, but it had not been.
0: Yes, it does, doesn't it? And But I think that I would also take a peek at some of the federal law that has allowed this to occur. I don't know where we are in that area, but that that is something I recall reading a few years back. It may may have gone away by now, but I would, I would suggest a peek at that. Anyway, um, and now we're running down to our last two minutes, one minute, and just uh, I have a whole bunch of other things to talk about with you, Commissioner Scanlon, but I'm going to have to let you go for now. But thank you so much for being with us. And a few last words from you.
1: Yeah, well, just want to thank you. Always good to be on. I think this is the second or third time I've been on and in a new capacity, but I always really enjoyed working with you as a legislative colleague, and I so look forward to continuing this fight with you, especially when it comes to health care going forward, because I think we both hear stories after story after story from the people that we represent saying that we got to fix this. And, uh I just want people to know that we're on it. you've got a great state rep in Willimantic working on this for you every day, and I'm proud to work with you and so many other people to try to make health care more affordable, make Connecticut more affordable and uh, i think we we're we're gotten some good progress for the first time in a long time. When it comes to Connecticut's economy and our budget, and now we just gotta keep on keeping on that progress.
0: All right. Thank you so much, Commissioner Scanlon. Uh, We wanna have you back as soon as we can, and you have a great uh, rest of the day, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thank you so much.